Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is one of the biggest shows of the year. Anytime that Penelope Burke is here on The Nonprofit Coach, it is one of the biggest shows we have. Uh, As a matter of fact, Penelope Burke is the number two largest listenership on the nonprofit coach of all time. The only person who could edge out Penelope Burke was Kay Sprinkle Grace, uh, who is number one of all time, and there is only about 90 listens that separate the two of them. So they are in a league of their own uh, at the top of the rankings here on the nonprofit coach. It's always a pleasure Uh, to welcome Penelope back here. So she will be our page two expert. Uh, As our announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so feel free to call in and ask questions of Penelope when we get to page two. You can also join me over in the chat room. See a few folks over in the chat room. Please uh, feel free to ask questions there. Uh, Or, as always, you can email me your questions at at tedhart.com. Here on The Nonprofit Coach, we always start the show with page one news. Over here on page one news, we start off with Chronicle of Philanthropy, uh, noting that gifts to donor-advised funds grew 23% in 2013. A recent study uh, shows donor-advised funds, of course, are one of the big stories in uh, American giving. Uh, And I'm happy to share with you uh, that CAF America, uh, which I currently serve as CEO, uh, has entered the Chronicle of Philanthropy Philanthropy 400 list, uh, and CAF America is now the 278th largest charity Uh, in the entire country. We continue to grow. Uh, We grow because of the growth of our donor advised funds and the interest that donors have in giving internationally. Uh, So I certainly invite you to learn more about CAF America at cafamerica.org and certainly the value of donor advised funds 
and the interest that donors have in giving both domestically and internationally. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach is good news for our friends over at GuideStar. The Gates uh, Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, has recently pledged $3 million over three years to help GuideStar expand and enhance its nonprofit information database, changes that are detailed in the strategic plan uh, that was released by GuideStar earlier this year and has been discussed during the GuideStar Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we've uh, spoken with uh, Jacob Harold uh, regarding the GuideStar 2020 report, uh, and we congratulate them. I know they have a, a long way to go. They still need to raise another $7 million uh, towards their goal. GuideStar is an important service uh, in the nonprofit sector, one that we applaud and are happy to give a platform to here on a monthly basis here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, next up, we're going to uh, cut it a little bit short on page one news. We usually uh, cover a few more articles, and I want to thank everybody who emails in their ideas for articles. Uh, we'll pick that up again uh, next week. Uh, but uh, for today, we're going to wrap up because we've got so much to cover with Penelope Burke uh, with just a note of a special program over at TechSoup.org. TechSoup.org uh, has a refurbished computer initiative product cat, uh, catalog uh, that is available. We'll be putting this up in the radio links available over at tedhart.com for nonprofit organizations. They're looking to um, have some uh, new tablets, uh, computers. Uh, they also have monitors uh, that are available at very special prices, uh, and those are all refurbished uh, computers available through TechSoup.org. With that, uh, we're going to race over to page two so we can have the maximum amount of time today with our special guest star, Penelope Burke. Penelope Burke uh, almost needs no uh, introduction here on the Nonprofit Coach. She is so popular and always does so well. She's an author, trainer, and presenter. She's the president of Cygnus Applied Research. For over 40 years, um, she has been in the nonprofit management sector, working in fundraising and research. A native of Montreal, Canada, uh, which, of course, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, uh, to note that just this uh, year, uh, CAF America has opened a subsidiary called CAF Canada, uh, now with CRA approval in Canada to allow Canadians to make international project funding uh, out of Canada. So we're very pleased to be partnering with a number of people in Canada to make that possible. Penelope began her professional career in market research, public relations, and fundraising. Uh, this is in her DNA. That's why she's so good at this. Um, welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Penelope Burke. Ted, hi. And the first thing I want to say is congratulations on your fund. That's a phenomenal performance. Well done. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, we're um, we're so excited to have you back here on the show. My my goodness, I, I were you aware of the fact that you are number two of all time here on the nonprofit coach? No, I was not. So I'm thrilled, and I must say I'm even happier that I'm behind one of my very favorite people in the not for profit sector. Kay is yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Kay Sprinkle Grace, of course, uh, just for all of you playing at home, um, uh, checking your uh, your calendars uh, for uh, upcoming shows, uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace, of course, is so popular here. She has 
a set date on the Nonprofit Coach schedule uh, every single year. She is our final show of the year before we go on holiday hiatus. Uh, and so this year, Kay Sprinkle Grace will be back here live on the Nonprofit Coach December 9th, which is our last live show before we go on holiday hiatus. Uh, so, yeah, the two of you right at the top of the show, but, but I'm actually going to spend a little bit more time here at the top of the leaderboard uh, here at the, the nonprofit coach because number one is Case Sprinkle Grace. Number two is Penelope Burke. Number three is Jen Fila and Helen Brown also looking at prospect research. Uh, and when I keep going down and looking down where all of these popular people are here on the show, it seems that data uh, matters. Strategy matters. Um, this is, of course, where you excel. Um, so start off by, before we get into the Burke Report and talking about all that, um, what's happening in the nonprofit sector in this turn to data? You know, it's a really big deal. And I have to say that while uh, senior fundraisers and consultants and their huge body of knowledge is vital to the charitable sector as a whole and to fundraising in particular. Um, today, fundraising practitioners on the front lines and their managers in the back room want opinion backed up by research and not just research with fundraisers and charities, but research with donors. So it's essential that this combined information from what, how donors think, what they want, what their plans are for the future uh, is taken into account when uh, people formulate opinions or, an I or ideas about what matters in fundraising and where it's going in the future. Of course, you were way ahead in this, uh, in this area. You were providing data and, and doing surveys of donors way before anybody was really thinking that this was uh, important. I think you led the way in helping people understand that we can understand more, that there is a science side. It doesn't take away the art side of, of fundraising. It doesn't take away anything from the very personal side of fundraising. I want to talk a little bit about and just point out to everyone, um, I think a very smart and important change uh, in your annual survey that we're going to be looking at today, and that is it's been rebranded the Burke Donor Survey. And, of course, you're so popular and so well-known. Talk to me a little bit about um, why the change. I think it's a smart one. You know, it's an interesting thing. If I were advising a client who had three commodities to brand, I would say never do that. <laughs> and we, um, But we were doing it ourselves to some degree, um, as it turns out, both my name, because I'm out there doing a lot of speaking engagements, and the uh, phrase donor-centered fundraising, which became branded to us when I published my original research work, and then the third name, Cigna Supplied Research, which is the company that does the research behind me. Um, we were attempting to brand all three things simultaneously. And most people didn't understand what Cygnus was. And then, of course, we realized that it didn't matter whether they understood it or knew the name or could pronounce it, because most people pronounce it Cygnus, <laughs> and, um, uh, and that it was better to actually ca uh, capitalize on the known commodity, uh, which is my name, and that's why we've changed. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a smart move. Let's, let's get right into the 2014 uh, Burke Donor Survey, which, of course, is – 
uh, one of the leading voices in understanding uh, and sort of getting into the heads of, of, uh, of donors. Uh, and you have seen a change in uh, the focus, the makeup, the characteristics of donors uh, over time, what they're looking for. I, I think the, the bottom line, and you're going to take us through a lot of the data, uh, is that uh, donors are far more savvy and expecting far more transparency than ever before. Yes, are they ever. And they're, they can articulate what they want very clearly. Uh, they're very, very attached to their philanthropy, which is wonderful. And that really um, uh, takes them a long way towards saying yes uh, when we ask them for money. Uh, but they're also incredibly strategic today about who they choose to give to, who they stay with long-term, and who they feel uh, deserves their most generous gifts overall. So we've been doing the Burke Donor Survey now for six consecutive years. And every year I say to myself, this year's study can't possibly be as interesting as last year. And every year I'm wrong, so I'm thrilled to be uh, giving you the 2014 statistics on the Ted Hart Let's, Show. Yeah, well, thank you. Let's start off with what surprised you most. <laughs> I think um, the number one finding, and it's so positive, is the extraordinary attachment of young donors under the age of 35 to their philanthropy and what those donors uh, have been doing regarding giving and, even more important, what their you know, future is when they look ahead at their philanthropy, what they think they can do this year, what they're planning to do on the longer term, and then what's getting in the way of maximizing young donors' giving. So there's nothing uninteresting uh, in our research study, but I think as a theme, that one stood out uh, over and above everything else this year. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at this statistic right now, which is absolutely astounding. Uh, help me put this in historical context. The youngest donors in your survey under 35 years of age were most likely to report having contributed to more causes last year, 41%. Then were middle-aged uh, or senior donors. Now, doesn't that turn conventional fundraiser knowledge on its head? It may be that we've only not thought about it in the past by age group because we capture a lot of uh, young donors in their first few years of giving. You know, understandably, our youngest donor in the survey this year was 16. <laughs> so. Um, they are more likely to be the age group that is adding to the volume of causes they support. Uh, but and, and so if we only looked at uh, last year uh, on the question, did you give to more or fewer causes than you supported the previous year, the number is up. And on the short term, that looks good. But if we, uh, if we look at what middle-aged and older donors are doing with volume of causes. And these are the people who are more likely to have settled into a pattern of giving um, now and have sort of a fixed number of causes they support. When I look at that, the oldest donors in the survey over 65 support far more causes than middle-aged donors do. And that speaks to uh, definitely a challenge for fundraisers and a long-term uh, behavioral pattern that is definitely shifting. 
but, but also is potentially more positive than than I think a lot of authors or others may have given credit to younger people. Um, conventionally, focusing on younger people is is not what fundraisers do. No, and the reason for the focus, and it's definitely understandable, but we leave a, money, a lot of money on the table, is that uh, one of the flaws in fundraising, we know it, is that we make a lot of our decisions about what to do with a donor next based on the value of the gift they gave us most recently or the accumulative value over a period of time. And the youngest donors, uh, our youngest donors in our survey, made gifts last year that were only 10% of the value of older donors. And this is even when we take out uh, young donors who are unemployed or full-time students. And we look only at employed, young and middle-aged donors who are still in the workforce. Um, Still, only 10% of the value of gifts. And if we're making decisions based on gift value, then we're missing uh, potential. So uh, there are good reasons why the survey's youngest donors are giving so modestly. The key reasons are underemployment and student debt, both of which are horrendous for young people. And these things are holding their gift values back, but they're not holding their philanthropic spirit back. As soon as I read that, it made me think of of another uh, report um, that I'm sure that you're familiar with uh, that came out of uh, the uh, uh, Lilly Family School Philanthropy at Indiana University, um, the Women Give 2014 report. Uh, and in that report, it, it, it mentions that millennial and gener- Gen X women who are single and unaffiliated with a religion gave two and a half times more money to charity than their older, similarly secular counterparts. Uh, yes. And that giving also doubles that of peers who have loose ties to religion. So within that sort of younger cohort, do you also find that young women are are moving to the head of that, that line? Yes. In areas where we compare gender and age, um, it, it's, it's a product of the times. And that women who are employed <laughs> are are likely to be employed Um, in similar professions as men, not earning the same amount. Interestingly, we're still finding that women across the board, even among the youngest uh, women in our survey, are still earning only about 80% of what men earn for the same jobs. And by the way, in the fundraising business, it's even worse at 76%. That said... um, That's really for for the same position. Yeah, sorry. And for the same same position, so so pay is not uh, moving more uh, in parity, uh, even in the nonprofit sector. No, it's better, but it's not there yet. So, given the results of the research that you quoted, women really are making quite a phenomenal statement about their philanthropy by giving generously and often giving gen- more generously than men, in spite of the fact that they earn less money. So how did donors give uh, in your report? What what were the, the ways that they were likely to give? Well, they're giving all over the map. You know, direct mail is still um, a preferred method of giving, but now only for donors over the age of 70 in our research study. 
And uh, when I look at that age group and cut that data even more finely, um, we're really looking at donors who say their priority giving method is direct mail, um, and they're over 75. So um, everybody else under 70 has shifted to a preference for electronic giving in one form or another. But I still want to say that how a donor transacts a gift and what influences them to want to transact a gift are often two different things. So and that's while the, that's middle the age, yeah, it's, so I was it's, just going to say that's the crux of the of the strategy, right? That that comes out of a report like this is don't jump to the conclusion and say, okay, I dropped my direct mail, because direct mail is changing in its influence um, and how it's going to be transacted, and it's the marriage between online and offline. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, when we asked uh, donors about giving for the first time this year. Um, only 10% of donors who made a first-time gift to someone within the last year said the mission of the organization was entirely uh, responsible for that. 90% um, of donors said there were several factors included, and among those factors are how we are communicating outward to existing donors as well as prospective donors for the future. And uh, donors will see, for instance, a direct mail appeal, and they may not respond in any way to that appeal at that particular moment in time. But over time, the accumulative appeals that are coming through the mail, plus other marketing efforts coming in other ways, eventually inspire someone who is aligned with the cause uh, to start giving. And you can never trace it back to one thing. And so in that regard, depending on fundraising alone, as opposed to fundraising and marketing and communications, lessens your ability to attract new donors. But also, depending on only one fundraising methodology is a dangerous um, approach to take as well, both in acquiring donors and in renewing donor support. Well, this is this is where we start getting into you know the real meat and potatoes of of how do you use data, how do you strategize on a report like this? Because I, I think I find and you probably find uh, the same thing is that you know a lot of fundraising. Just tell me what's the silver bullet? How how do I do this? So what what is the recipe here? And and I think what comes out of your report is there isn't a recipe. There is data that can help guide you, but just as you pointed out, don't jump to the conclusion to say, okay, well, I'm going to cut my, my direct uh, uh, marketing uh, budget um, because uh, uh, Penelope Burke says it's all about online. Well, you're probably going to hurt your program if you do that because you're not paying attention to the nuance of what donors are saying. That is true, but you could hear as um, you said something really important, and I, I want to jump off that and say, for example, though, in managing a fundraising operation and within and working within um, a limited budget, as everybody has to, then how do you look at your direct mail program, for instance? If direct mail is considered by donors to be an important communications device, but if more and more donors are transacting the gift online, then is it possible to handle the direct mail aspect more cost-effectively? 
Do you need all those enclosures in the envelope, for instance? Or um, what is the objective? Should be you be using uh, the mail to inspire someone to go to your website? And I can say on that one that the answer is definitely yes, because when you can get donors to go to your website, a higher percentage of them follow through and give, and their gift values are higher than are the gifts of donors who don't go to your website first. So the question, the issue is not should I uh, get rid of direct mail. The, the interesting question is how can I use direct mail to further gift renewal and elevate gift value, and where does it fit in the whole mix of of assets I have in fundraising? And that's really where you need to start your strategy is in looking at this kind of data is creating those kinds of scenarios rather than jumping to conclusions about one aspect of the survey. That's right. And I was thrilled when I looked at um, our questions on, um, on when we asked donors how they intended to give in the next 12 months. And we asked them basically, do you plan to give more less or relatively the same as you gave before. And among the donors who said, I think I'll probably give approximately the same this year as I gave last, which is of the majority of donors, we then asked those people, you know, is there anything that could change your mind and make you decide to actually give more than give the same? And only one in five donors said that they're their opinions or their plans were fixed and that there was no chance they would give more. Four out of five said, yes, you could influence me to give more, and here's what I need. And at the top of that list of what they needed was more specific information about where their money would be going and uh, what results that the not-for-profits they were supporting are achieving with those focused gifts. So what does that say to a nonprofit in terms of what they need to be measuring, what they need to be reporting, um, and do you feel that from the donor's perspective, charities are doing a good job of this? I think they're definitely, uh, I, I don't just think, our research says they're definitely getting better. So um, here, um, I'll just phrase the critical question in this research study and in many research studies we've done that focuses in on the central objective of all fundraising, which is to hold on to donors as long as possible and to get them to contribute more generously over time because that makes you more profitable in fundraising. And here's how we phrased the question this year to give donors um, an idea um, of what the possibilities were out there for their philanthropy. We said this, soon after making a first gift, and first gifts, by the way, tend to be not generous within donors, means more than 70% of donors, when they make their first gift, deliberately make a contribution that is smaller than they could have made at that moment in time. So is, there some measure, is there some measure to that, how much smaller than capacity that first gift might be? Well, the measure we have found comes after the fact when we test donors after making a first gift, and we find that um, about 
uh, anywhere between 2 to 6% will jump to a major gift from an introductory level gift uh, right after um, if they're given the treatment they need. And an additional uh, 35% or so will move their gift value up substantially, not up to the major level, but substantially. So we're looking at almost 40% of donors who make a first gift are capable and willing to make a much larger gift if they get what they need. And, and what are those triggers? What are those? How how can our listeners today trigger that kind of response? Well, we've been asking um, the following question now for 15 years, and I'm pleased to say that donors' answer is still the same. So here's the scenario we put in front of donors. Soon after you make a first gift, you get a prompt and appealing letter of thanks in which you're told about the program or the project to which your gift will be assigned. Later on, down the road, you receive an evidence-based update on how that program has progressed to date and the role that donors' gifts have played in that success. Only after you receive that are you then asked for another gift. So in putting that scenario in front of donors, we, uh, which we've been doing for a decade and a half now, and we've now asked over a quarter of a million donors this same question, we then want to know what they will do the next time they were asked if they got that treatment uh, when, when they responded to an appeal. So the first thing we ask them is, what is the likelihood that you'll give again the very next time you are asked? And in our most recent study, 67% of donors said that they would definitely or probably renew their gift the next time they were asked. And just to put that into perspective with what's happening in fundraising today, only about 35% of new donors end up renewing their giving sometime over the next year. This is not necessarily the next time they are asked, but just sometime in the next 12 months. So 67% is a decided improvement. <laughs> the next question we ask of those who say they would definitely or probably give again, what is the likelihood of you making a larger gift the next time? And in this year's study, over half, 52%, said that they would make a larger gift if they got that treatment that I articulated before. Now, currently, among donors who do give again, only 22% make a larger gift, and this is according to the fundraising effectiveness survey report that is run by the AFP every year. And finally, um, the likely, we ask them, what's the likelihood of you continuing to stay loyal indefinitely as long as you continue to get that treatment? 67% said they would, whereas currently in fundraising, only 10% of donors stay loyal indefinitely. So the well, numbers. What I was going to say is, your, your point, you're painting a picture of of the average fundraising program not living up to the the expectations of what donors say they're willing to do. So yes. where's the disconnect between the outcomes that that charities uh, receive and what donors say they're willing to do? Uh, we do a couple of things that drive donors away in fundraising 
and we're not recognizing the value of their participation. So I mentioned briefly already that we're looking at gift value instead of realizing how amazing it is when someone chooses your not-for-profit for support because at any moment in time, they have over a million and a half choices of 501c3s and other nonprofit organizations of, uh, that they can give to. So when a donor comes to you, that is a huge, huge uh, accomplishment. And second, if donors are deliberately lowballing or minimizing their introductory gift value, then that doesn't mean that that's all the money they have. So donors are not the value of their gifts. <laughs> Uh, so we should look past gift value and say, okay, we got the donor in the door. Now what do we need to do to ensure that that donor will give again and start moving their gift values up to the level that they can actually contribute? And then there's the whole new level on top of that. How do we move a donor up to a level that even they don't know they can give? And that's when major gifts officers and true relationship fundraising come into play. So I'd say number one is don't label donors by their introductory level gift value. Number two, do not over-solicit. Uh, still, when I first started asking donors about why they stop giving, uh, this is back oh, 11 years ago now, 41% referenced over-solicitation as the number one reason why they stopped supporting an organization. In this year's study, the number had risen to 64%. So it's huge. It's the over-solicitation is, is, is something that really jumps out in your report. If it's all right with you, Penelope, we're going to take a quick break when we come back that 64% of respondents have said that they now stop giving or give less to not-for-profits that over-solicit. When, when we come back, I'm hoping that you can help uh, my listeners understand what does over-solicit mean. And we'll be right back after this break. Thrilled, of course, today to have Penelope Burke here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach. Um, this show is always one of the, the biggest shows of the year. I want to share with you and get your calendars out uh, the remaining shows between now and when we go on uh, uh, winter hiatus, uh, as I mentioned, on December 9th. Uh, next week, we will be here uh, with Meredith Hanks uh, re researching to find more money. Uh, we then have Ken Berger, another very popular uh, show here on the Nonprofit Coach on December 2nd. Uh, he'll be here to answer all of your questions to talk about Charity Navigator. And then the final show for uh, this season uh, will be planning your New Year success with Kay Sprinkle Grace. Uh, she will be here um, with us on December 9th, uh, and uh, we'll wrap up uh, the show for the winter holiday, and then we will be back with you uh, in January live after the holidays. And we're going to head right back to the show so that we can learn more from Penelope Burke. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. 
If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we are back here live with Penelope Burke. Uh, we are discussing the very important and, and uh, uh, always sought-after Burke donor survey, where philanthropy is headed. Uh, and uh, when we went on the break, Penelope, we were just looking at this uh, very important statistic that you have brought forward that 64% of respondents said that they now stop giving or give less because of over-solicitation. What does that mean that's grown from 41% uh, when uh, you first started asking that over a decade ago, which means that a lot of charities are really ticking off their donors by asking too much, but how much is too much? Well, it's an interesting dilemma because there's two ways you can look at over-solicitation. One is too many not-for-profits asking a donor for money, and the other is a single organization asking too often. And, um, but I can sort of narrow this down for everybody listening because you can't do anything about who else is soliciting your donor. So I wouldn't worry about the first definition. The second one is really interesting, though, because when we ask donors how many appeals from a single not-for-profit um, are acceptable over the course of a 12-month period and how many is too many, they don't end up giving it a number. And initially, when I started asking, I was sure they would say, you know, two is okay, but three is too many, or four is fine, but five is too many. But they define it differently. They say over-solicitation to me means being asked to give again before I'm satisfied about what happened with the last gift. So there is a, an unavoidable connection between how often we solicit and whether or not we communicate in between those appeals to donors about what's being accomplished. If we don't communicate, or if we do communicate, but we solicit so often that the donor doesn't realize that this is information as opposed to another appeal and just dumps the email or throws out the envelope unopened, then we are hurting ourselves. So rampant solicitation can leave donors with the feeling that all we ever do is ask and we never talk to donors about what we're accomplishing. And that just doesn't work for them. They need to hear that information. They need to get it unencumbered. In other words, if you're phoning a donor to ask them to give again, it's not good enough to say, and by the way, um, here's what we accomplished with the gift you gave us last time. Now can we have some more money? <laughs> it, because they'll see that only as a setup. You know, a solicitation is a powerful thing, and it overwhelms anything else you're trying to say to a donor that justifies why you're asking again. So it seems that the best relationship between communication and solicitation is that when you are asking for money, do it well, do it boldly, go forward with confidence. But when you are communicating results of what donors' previous gifts have accomplished for you, do that very deliberately 
and don't encumber it with an appeal. So it sounds to me like you are talking about good old-fashioned stewardship, something that has been talked about uh, for decades, if not longer, uh, and, and few seem to get it right. Yes, it is stewardship, but stewardship exists in a phenomenally sophisticated way at the high end of fundraising when donors are giving very generously and they have relationship managers assigned to them. Major and planned gifts fundraising are you know, donor-centered, very, um, very um, uh, appealing to donors right from the get-go. And the issue is, though, that most donors are giving below that threshold that would qualify them, supposedly, for that kind of treatment. And that's a mistake. You know, fundraising at the bottom end, when we're talking about large number of donors giving relatively modestly, is more passive than active. And what I don't mean by passive is that fundraisers are sitting around with their feet up on the desk. That's not... That's not true at all. It's passive fundraising is very hard work. It actually takes longer <laughs> to do than active fundraising. What I mean by passive is we we put out we do kind of the same things with a large number of donors. And then we notice the ones who tend to give very generously, even though the same approach was offered to all donors. Then we treat those donors at the top differently. The problem is, though, that all donors need good information about what the charities they support are doing with their money in order to even want to give again, let alone want to give more generously. So if we withhold good information from a donor just because they have not given over a certain threshold, then the only people we're actually hurting are ourselves. Because in the absence of information, donors move on to the next not-for-profit. And we lose that huge investment made in, in acquiring them in the first place. And then we lose untold revenue that we would have made had we kept that donor giving over a longer period of time. I often refer to those donors here on this show as donors with training wheels uh, because they're, they're testing us out. They're trying us out. Uh, do, they, do they like us? Do we treat them well? Do we communicate well? And what it sounds like uh, is oftentimes we don't. We disappoint our, our new hopeful donors with training wheels, uh, and they take those training wheels and they move on and try to find somebody else who maybe can meet their expectations. Yes, but I, here's where I'm very sympathetic with fundraisers because nobody knows whether a particular donor will give again or whether they'll give more generously. And to invest <clears throat> up front in the hope that donors will give again is a scary thought. And frankly, that's why we do the research that we do. So we are able to answer the question that a fundraiser can't answer by looking at their own data. So, for instance, you know, we will ask donors why they um, to focus on the organization that they most recently stopped giving, and why they did that, and what circumstances would have caused them to make a different, better decision. 
And, you know, our role in the fundraising industry is to, you know, present the what if uh, and to look at the other side of fundraising that we cannot analyze strictly from uh, donors who keep giving and give more generously over time. You know, the happiest news in this research study, which is always the happiest news in every study we conduct, that the last question we ask, or the second to last, actually, and uh, is, last year, did you give all the money that you could, or did you leave money on the table? You know, could you have grown your philanthropy last year? And uh, in the current year study, 40% of the donors in our study, and we surveyed uh, 20,000 donors, said they could have given more last year. And some of them said they could have given a lot more, but they're holding their philanthropy back. So the really, really good news is that we've nowhere near tapped out philanthropy. And I don't think we ever can, because when I ask that question, I'm asking donors to consider giving more right now and their capacity to do so, not sometime in the future when their ship comes in, but right at this moment in time. So if 40% of donors could give more right now, what if you put a skilled, trained, major gifts fundraiser in front of those donors? I bet that number would go even higher. Because so we need... Donors they often we need it. charities to be looking deeper into their donor pool to be providing more of a donor experience. In your research, you take a look at um, donor recognition or, or thank yous. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit uh, about um, what charities may be doing in terms of name recognition and plaques and token gifts and things of that sort, uh, which so many charities do versus those things that donors say are really meaningful and they wish you would do more of? You know, it's a fascinating area because fundraisers uh, allocate quite a bit of their budget to donor recognition, and it takes a lot of staff time. So knowing what works well and what works less well is really critical to assigning budget and talent where you can get the best bang for your buck. So... Um, in 15 years of research, I've been able to conclude <clears throat> that recognition falls into two categories, experiential or stuff, <laughs> things, and, or tactical. And experiential recognition is incredibly popular with donors, and it is highly effective at influencing retention and higher gift value. So what does that mean? How, what would be an example of experiential? A great example of an experience is a donor recognition event. When you can get a donor into a donor recognition event, uh, those events are hugely impactful on donors' decisions to give again. We studied that very thing uh, very recently. And among donors who had attended at least one recognition event in the past year, 86% said they were incredibly positive experiences. We wanted to know what they meant by incredibly positive. What are the things that they remember uh, that stood out? Number one, meeting the people, uh, no, number one, learning more about how my gift 
and other donors' gifts are being used. Number two, meeting the people behind the organization. Number three, meeting other donors who support the same cause, hugely valuable to donors. Then we said, um, think about the last recognition event you attended. How did it influence the next gift or you, you made or just the decision to make the next gift? So first of all, among donors who had already given again or been asked to give again, uh, 30% made an unsolicited gift after the event because they were so inspired when they were there. An additional 40% um, made a gift when they were asked to give that they can attribute back to attending the event. In other words, they gave because they had been at the event. So these are hugely impactful experiences. At the other end of the scale, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in terms of, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of all the things that you study and all the the things that, um, that strategy that can come out of the Burke report, this seems to be one of the most concrete, clear black and white differences between what charities may be doing now and what they should be doing, and, and they have the capacity to make that change. Uh, Absolutely. Would that be correct? It's very correct. Um, it's, on donor recognition, we can decisively say the number one thing that inspires donor loyalty is a thank you letter. And it's something everybody's doing already. But doing it well and doing it promptly are what donors say is critically important to them. Thank you letters, donor recognition events, a thank you call, you know, picking up the phone and saying to a donor, you know, I don't get to talk to you very often, but I know you're out there and your loyalty is so appreciated by us. There's no way we could do what we do if you didn't keep giving. That kind of momentary contact that takes less than a minute to do, even leaving a voicemail, has a huge impact on a donor's decision to give again and give more generously. And then at the other end of the scale, um, giving them token gifts like fridge magnets and address labels, um, uh, publishing their name in an annual report or a newsletter has almost no impact on donors, and yet we spend a lot of time and money doing those very things. So in this year's study, 92% of donors said having their name published in an annual report or some kind of newsletter or online on the website does not at all influence whether they'll give again or give it more generously. An additional 3% said it influences them negatively. They stop giving or give less because they don't want to be recognized in that way. And only about um, 5% said that it plays a role positively in their decisions to give again. So when the numbers get down that small, this is an activity you could set aside and use the funds more usefully uh, in a different direction, providing good information on what's being accomplished with gifts, um, uh, giving donors the opportunity to see your work firsthand, that kind of thing. 
so much more powerful. And and yet, why do charities not make those phone calls? That that seems like such a, a quick and easy strategy to pull from the Burke Report. Well, you know, they do. And it's happening more and more now. When I first published my initial research and testing on the impact that calling a donor to say thank you had on fundraising success, nobody had ever done it. And this was donors would say when I asked them, what do you think you would do if a board member or a staff member called you to say thank you? They were just blown away. But now um, a lot of not-for-profits are working this into part of their donor recognition program and with very good results. So recently we ran a survey and asked uh, how many donors um, that we surveyed had had at least one of these thank you calls within the last year. And it was around uh, 3,500, which is a lot, a lot of donors. And so we zeroed in on that group of donors and said, you know, what kind of, what happened after you got the call? And similar to what I talked about uh, with the donor recognition event experience, uh, uh, some donors gave unsolicited after the call, but most donors waited until they were asked again to give somewhere down the road, and they remembered the call. And the call was the thing at the top of the list that inspired them to give again. So it's a... I wonder if that's partly because it is so rare it has even more meaning. Yes, it's rare and it's personal because uh, donors acknowledge, and one of the the donors are just so unbelievably amazing (laughs) in in their, they're generous in so many ways and they're generous to us in our research studies. One of the things they say is in the end, writing a check is easy. Giving your time is the thing they admire most. And everybody is short of time. We're all running flat out. And so a donor looks at a leadership volunteer, for instance, someone sitting on a board, and says, that's the ultimate in community service. They're giving their time, which they probably don't have. They're making decisions at a very serious level. They're contributing to community in the most positive way you can by volunteering. And so if a board member calls me to say thank you, I feel that I have been honored at the very top um, of the charitable organization that, that I've supported. And because they don't have to call me and because their time is so precious, when they do, I am so um, delighted that it's a no-brainer that I will give again and that I will give more generously. Well, these are very important clues that, that you're giving to us here. And, of course, your report and your time here on the Nonprofit Coach is always one of the, the highlights of, uh, of the year. Uh, we've got about five minutes left. So what I was hoping you could do is give us a snapshot of who are these donors uh, because I noticed in, in your research uh, really skewed on the uh, education spectrum. Um, but also I want to make sure that my listeners, uh, before we say goodbye, know how to reach you. Well, the reason we can attract so many donors into our studies, and I'm pretty sure that our studies, which on average bring in twenty to 25,000 donors at a time, Um, are the biggest studies by volume of active donors responding. 
And the, the, it's made possible because we partner with not-for-profits all across the United States and in Canada. And um, not our partners who range from, as you mentioned, uh, universities and colleges, uh, religious organizations, arts institutions. We cover all nine uh, sectors of the not-for-profit um, uh, sector. Uh, our partners reach out to their donors via email and ask them to go online and complete our anonymous survey. And uh, in the survey, we're not asking donors about how they give to our partner or what their opinions are of our partner. We're asking donors about their philanthropy in general. And so um, uh, partners are very eager to, uh, to participate because they get good information back um, and uh, they get it all for free. <laughs> so our partners get our full 100-page report, a private webinar where I discuss the findings early with them before they're released to the public. And as such, um, our partners often come back year after year. But we're always welcoming new not-for-profits into this study. So if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about what it takes to be a partner in the study for 2015, um, they can go to our website at cygresearch.com. And there's lots of information there about what partners do and what they get in return. So if and, of course, we'll provide that, that link in the radio links at tedhart.com. And, uh, and I know that uh, Diane, our producer, always makes sure that we get you back on the show for a page one spot to let us know when uh, people should be signing up and, and information on deadlines and things of that sort. So we try to do our best to bring new blood into the Burke Report. Um, I know we are winding up. We're almost at the end of your show. Um, one other question that we asked, which was astoundingly revealing, was can you remember the first time you ever made a charitable gift? And as I mentioned earlier, we have donors in our survey who are 70, 80, and over 90 years old, and most of them could still remember the first time they gave and if you have a minute, I can give you just um, an idea of some of the 12,000 stories that we got from donors about their first get, giving experience. I, I'll, I'll give you a deal. If you can do it quick, I can give you 45 seconds, and then I have oh, to I, say goodbye. I can definitely do that. So here's one from a young um, fundraiser, a uh, young donor, I should say. My first gift was to a political campaign when I was in high school. I liked the speaker, and so I gave him quite a large amount for, for a young kid, $25. The candidate was delighted, but he was a bit embarrassed, too, that he was taking this money from a teenager. So he tried to give it back to me, but I said, no, no, please accept it. I thought he was sincere, which made me really want to give. Here's another one from a mother. My daughter suffered from mental illness all her life. Eventually, she committed suicide. That's why I give. Here's one. Very, very, very personal. I'm going to have to say goodbye because I don't want to miss the opportunity to say thank you, Penelope Burke, for another amazing show. Thank you for continuing to do all that you can uh, to help advance the cause of fundraising and philanthropy. 
uh, and I'm already looking forward to next year's show. Uh, everyone, join us here next week here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Penelope. Thank you, Ted. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.